Thanks, Andrew. Well, well read, uh, capturing the emotion there of a really difficult passage too. Um, if you've got a Bible, please keep it open. We're looking at that whole chapter of chapter 9 in Job. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just Google uh, Job chapter 9 NIV and the Bible Gateway will give it to you there and you can have that in front of you. Um, but how about we pray now as we look at God's Word. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Job uh, and we thank you for his honesty, uh, for the way that he uh, cries out to you in his pain and grief. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that we would be a people like that, uh, honest with you about how we're feeling. Uh, and we pray that as we look at this uh, passage, you would be here with us. Amen. Uh, the question really at the beginning of the book of Job, uh, is Job a real believer? Uh, does Job fear God for nothing, asks the Satan, uh, the adversary. Is Job the real deal uh, or is his worship of God just based on all that the Lord has given him, the wealth and health and everything that, that comes with that? Will Job ditch God when things get tough? Uh, Christopher Ash tells the story of going driving with um, his son. Uh, they parked, and as they parked, another car came and parked in front of them, a really flash car, uh, the sort of car that really turns heads wherever it, it goes. Uh, a Ferrari, does that mean anything to you? Something worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this is in the UK. And so as they saw this car, they sort of stopped and uh, I guess, marvelled at this beautiful vehicle for a while, but also wondered what was in it, who was in it. Uh, it's in the UK, so that they imagined, uh, I guess, as we might imagine, uh, a famous footballer, a soccer player, some athletic, tall sort of character opening the door and, and getting out. But as, as the door opened, uh, a short... Uh, tubby, balding, middle-aged man got out uh, and waddled off into the distance. Uh, Christopher Ash, who's a commentator on the Bible and worth reading on the book of Job, he tells that story to illustrate the point. What you see on the outside and what is on the inside, they don't necessarily correspond. The outside, church going, before meals, grace saying, uh, wealthy, perhaps, a neat and tidy family life, perhaps, the, the inside. We're in this section of Job, chapter 4, all the way through to chapter 27, the, the speeches of Job and his friends, uh, Job and his so-called friends wrestling with, with what has happened to Job, what's going on. And last week it was chapter 8, with Bildad, his first speech, and we're just continuing on from there. Uh, a summary of Bildad's thinking is in verse 20 of chapter 8, where he says, Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. And so that the system of his thinking, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, an emphasis on the justice of God. What's going on inside corresponds with what's going on on the outside. 
But in our experience of life, that doesn't always stand true, does it? Richard Feidley, you may know his Conversations uh, podcast, he begins his interview with Lee Sales by saying, in the year 542, the city of Constantinople was the biggest city in Europe by far until the Black Death arrived. Feidler said that the crisis was as bad as anything that has happened in uh, the history of the world. And he said one of the most terrifying aspects of it was there seemed to be no moral logic to it. The plague struck down the wicked and the good alike. Babies and the elderly seemed particularly susceptible. And afterwards, says Feidler, the stunned survivors were sure that God was very angry about something. But what? They couldn't figure it out. And he said, this is a question people often ask themselves when catastrophe strikes. Why me? Why now? And if it happens again, people want to know if the universe is against them or something. And it's the kind of questioning, isn't it, that assumes that there's a God, a sovereign ruler, someone who is in control of, of all things. And so the intellectually honest atheists will stop themselves crying out questions like, why me, why now, as their heart feels them. If there's no God, this is not a question to ask. But if there is a sovereign God... Well, the questions should fly, shouldn't they? And this is what happens with Job. The questions fly. And can I remind you, the end of this book, chapter 42, verse 7, we read, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. It's a bit strange, isn't it, as we've just had that Bible reading. In Job's speeches, he certainly says some things that are, that are wrong about God. Yet the Lord says that he's spoken truth. And so we question, is it possible to be wrong and right about God at the same time? As the questions fly... As Job struggles, his perception of God is not always right. He doesn't have the backstory that we have as readers that the Lord has given Satan just enough leash, so to speak, so that he can prove his, himself wrong, that the Lord allows evil to exist and even uses it for his glory. Job doesn't have the backstory, but Job's heart shows him to be a genuine believer. And so perhaps we picture the beaten up old car pulling into the car park in front, coughing and, and spluttering and the door not really opening but falling off. All that Job says is not right, yet the direction of his speech, his questioning and, and his wrestling reveals what's going on in the heart. And now as we get to chapter 9, Andrew just read it for us. Job speaks and he says in response to what Bildad has said, indeed, I know it's true. Indeed, I know that worldview that you've just outlined, it's true. 
But then for the rest of the chapter, what follows, we couldn't say that Job agrees with Bildad at all. And so it seems that what's happening for him, yes, I know the system, I believed it to be true, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, but this worldview that I guess Job grew up with, it's crumbling around him. And so he says, I know it's true, but verse 2 of chapter 9, how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? How can a person be in right relationship with the Lord, that is, be justified before God? And you see his great concern, having lost absolutely everything, Suffering so deeply, his great concern is where he stands before this sovereign Lord. And as they say, we long most deeply for that which we worship. And so you only have to close your eyes and think, what am I longing for? Success, comfort, family, fame, sexual satisfaction, whatever else. But for Job, when everything is stripped back, we see his deepest desire is to stand rightly before the Lord. And so what is so painful is that he cannot see a way for that to work. We might say from verses 1 to 4 that Job wants to stand before God. He wishes, he wishes that he could, but he can't. And it gets darker. You see verse 5 to 10. Job turns uh, upside down uh, the Bible's usual speech about the Lord ordering creation. With God unsettling creation. The Lord, the cause of disorder. Verse 5, he's overturning the mountains. Verse 6, shaking the foundations of the earth, the pillars that the Lord keeps steady in Psalm 75 and elsewhere, he makes tremble here. Verse 7, the Lord speaks and the sun doesn't shine. It's the opposite of its purpose. He seals off the stars, the light of the stars. And it's decreation language, isn't it? It's in Job's thinking that there's cosmic disorder and if God is sovereign, if God is in control, well, God must be the one to make it happen. In verses 11 to 13, God is elusive and as he's invisible, you see verse 11 and 12, when he passes me, I can't see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If God snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? In verses 14 to 20, God is just too strong for Job. Verse 14, we picture Job summoning God to court on the doorstep with the papers. Even if I summoned him and he responded... Do I believe he would give me a hearing? Verse 19, if it's a matter of strength, he says, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, well, who can challenge him? Verse 20 seems to have the emphasis. Such such is the power of 
the Lord, that although Job is innocent, in the Lord's presence he may say that he's not. You know how that works, don't you? You come into the presence of, of power and you just you can't stand. You say things that you didn't mean to say. And in verses 21 to 24, God is unjust according to Job. Now, this does not fit with our systematic theologies. But here Job says it. I guess he's been building to this this moment, saying this sovereign God is chaotic and elusive and mighty. He's also unfair. Just look with me, verse 21 to 24. It reads, although I am blameless, I've no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. They're heavy words, aren't they? Uh, a man in great despair. Verse 24, when a, when a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he, because he's sovereign, he blindfolds its judges. And this next line must be key. The end of verse 24, if it is not he, then, well, then who is it? If God is God, it must be him, mustn't it? Says Job, is there another at work? And Job doesn't have the backstory. The Lord allowing Satan's actions, that the Lord even sovereign over the Satan's actions and, and bigger picture long term using evil for good. But whereas Bildad began with the justice of God, God is just, therefore Job must be being punished for doing something that is wrong. Job begins with the sovereignty of God. God is in control. Job is innocent, therefore God is unfair. It's full on, isn't it? It's as though Job is asking for the Lord's resignation. Uh, We wouldn't allow one of our judges to, to behave like this in our country. You're sacked, we'd say. And it's as though Job is saying this. To the Lord. It's challenging that the way that God enacts his sovereignty in this world, isn't it? That there is chaos, that there is injustice, that there are things that are evil. And we long for that day when Jesus returns to make things things right. But God allowing evil and using it even in his, his sovereignty. Even as God allows his people to suffer. You know, in Luke 22, Jesus says to Simon Peter, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, says Jesus, that your faith may not fail. Sounds a little similar to Job's situation, doesn't it? Does Job love God for nothing, says Satan? Is it all about what you've given him? Well, the Lord allows the test and he protects Job's life. I'm conscious that many in our congregation have suffered profoundly 
and many of you are continuing to suffer the reality of this, this broken world. Uh, I really love uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to 7. We read this a lot at church where Peter praises God. We, we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for giving us that new birth into uh, this living hope through the resurrection uh, of Jesus from the dead. And we have that inheritance in heaven that, that is kept secure. It can never perish, spoil or fade. And we are kept secure for it by faith, he says. And then in that passage, you get to chapter 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, this, this salvation. And he says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that, your, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. The reality of this world, when we sit with us, it's really difficult, isn't it? The suffering of Job showing him to be a genuine believer. Is he the real deal? Even as in his grief he cries out things that are just wrong about God. As he struggles with perspective, thinking God is chaotic, God is elusive and mighty and unfair. Of course, he feels it. And it's so hard to stick the God of the Bible in a box, isn't it? Anyway, we shouldn't get too far ahead. Job is in misery at the moment. Uh, And I'm conscious we're only doing Job in five weeks. Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, Christopher Ash says there's an honesty in Job that is lacking in his comforters. Sometimes we think it's easier or better to just bury the big questions, hey? There's none of that with Job. And it's never easier or better long term. In verses 25 to 35, you notice Job sort of realises his time is running out. Life actually just goes by like that, doesn't it? What should he do? Verse 27 to 29, just get over it and cheer up. Verse 27, change the expression and and smile. Verse 29, why keep trying to be right with God? I struggle in vain, he cries out. In verse 30 to 31, Job seems to say, even if I get serious about, you know, this holiness stuff and and clean myself up with soap, God seems so against me, he's saying, that he'll just plunge me into a pit of slime. It's on the basis of his sufferings that, that Job would say God is doing this to him. God is being unfair. That's the feeling, isn't it? And it seems so hopeless for him. But, but as we get to verse 32 to 35, there's some faint hope in Job. You notice this as it was read, maybe it jumped out, I don't know. We read, uh, he, that is God, is not a mere mortal like me, 
that I might answer him, that we might comfort each other and confront each other in court, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. You see that the faint hope that's there, the problem is that, that God, God is not a human being. The problem is that he's the almighty transcendent Lord. And so Job longs for a mediator, someone who can bring the two together. There's no sign of one for Job at this point, but he hopes. And while uh, he goes on in despair in the chapters to come, This little glimmer of hope, it it sort of grows in chapter 16. He says, even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend, and my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man. He pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. In chapter 19, that, that famous verse, I know my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I'll see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. It's interesting, isn't it, that that there's such profound despair for him here. Even as he levels all of these accusations at at God and we think he's saying things that are wrong about God. Yes, of course. Even in all of that, what he longs for most is right standing before the Lord. How my heart yearns within me, he says. And maybe it reminds you as it did me of that famous line from Augustine, "Our, our heart is restless until it finds Rest in you, in in the Lord. Our heart is restless until we rest in the Lord. And we, I reckon we really just need to let this sit, hey. Uh, the agony of Job, let the questions fly. He said back in chapter 1, the, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. But living that out is no easy thing, as many of you know in day-to-day life. And of course, this afternoon, we can be thankful that there is a mediator who stands between us and God, uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom. But I want to finish this way, and I'm conscious this is sombre, But the passage is so sombre, isn't it? I want you to reflect, what's God doing with you at the moment? Uh, There's all kinds of things going on in life, perhaps. Well, I suppose there is. In all of that, I hope your greatest concern, our greatest concern, is to have right standing before the Lord, right relationship with him. 
And isn't it good that we can have that through Jesus? How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Job. Uh, And even as we've sort of looked at this difficult chapter, uh, we're reluctant, Lord, because embracing the difficulties of this life is really hard. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are honest with you, that as we struggle through the difficulties of life, that we wouldn't harden ourselves or push it aside, but that you would help us do business with you, that you would help us cry out to you in our pain and grief, that we would have a brutal honesty like Job. Lord, we know we have a bigger picture of the whole than he did. Uh, We're conscious of that. Uh, We're thankful that we know that evil has been defeated at the cross. Uh, We're thankful, Lord, that you can even use the mess and pain and the evil things in this world, that it's under your sovereign care and you can even use this stuff for your glory and our good. We thank you for that. Lord, we long for Jesus' return where you will sort all things out fully and finally. But Lord, it is our prayer that we would be like Job, that our greatest concern would not be houses and things or reputation or image or status or power, but that our heart's desire would to be be with you. And Lord, in Jesus, we thank you that we can know you and grow in you. And we pray that we might enjoy you in him forever. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.